All right, if you would open up your Bibles to Mark uh, 15, please. Mark chapter 15, please. Well, it's uh, about to be the 500th anniversary, 500 years since uh, the start of the Protestant Reformation. And um, uh, as we think about uh, what that meant for Protestantism, what it meant for our faith and practice, um, I'd like to uh, give you a couple of recommendations for books to be thinking about and reading about. Uh, this book right here is called the, Un- the Unquenchable Flame. It's written by a guy named Michael Reeves. Um, this, this is a book uh, covering the Reformation, discovering the heart of the Reformation is what the subtitle is. Really helpful book. I've gone through this with a teen, and I'm currently going through it with a teen. Uh, some longer chapters in there, but as you can see, it's a pretty thin book. Maybe something you'd like to use with your family or read through. I'm also, I've read that one. I'm reading this one right now, Rescuing the Gospel on the Reformation by Erwin Lutzer. A really helpful book in thinking about the significance of the Reformation and what it means for us today. Uh, so if you're looking for something to read maybe with your family um, or on your own, those books would be really helpful. And I'm going to start off by telling you a, a quick story that I heard and from a preacher by the name of David Platt, of course. And uh, I, uh, um, it's a story that I heard about a man in the Reformation time that I think of often when I come to the table, the Lord's table, because of what he stood for and fought for. made me think about, makes me think about how I approach the Lord's table. So some aspects of the story are from this preacher, David Platt, and some of them are from other resources like these right here. There's a man by the name of John Rogers. He, John Rogers was discipled by a man named William Tyndale. Heard of him? Rogers pastored in Germany and then returned to London in 1584 with his wife and eight children. He preached and pastored safely under the reign of King Edward VI. Shortly after Luther hangs his 95 theses in 1517, there begins to be a gradual change starting to take place in England. The Church of England was adopting more and more some of the Protestant teachings the Church of England was. King Henry VIII was slowly accepting some Protestant views, some for theological reasons, some for not-so-theological reasons, some for personal and political gain. His successor, King Edward VI, who became the king at a young age and died at the age of 15, was a lover of sermons and would listen to the preaching of a Protestant pastor by the name of Hugh Latimer. Then King Edward died in 1553, and his half-sister, Mary, proclaimed herself queen. Then and there, things changed for the Protestants. Queen Mary was against all Protestant teaching, faithful to the Church of Rome. She comes to England, and John Rogers was slated to preach that following Sunday. This was his moment. What will he do? Will he preach the Protestant biblical doctrine? That he did. He proclaimed boldly, 
Justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, through grace alone, to the glory of God alone. This was his last sermon. One week later, he was placed under house arrest with his wife and ten children, and another child on the way. Six months later, he was placed in prison for one year. Then in January of 1555, he was examined on three different occasions. And he was found guilty of these accusations. Number one, standing against the Church of Rome. And number two, saying that in the sacrament of the altar, there is not substantially nor really the natural body and blood of Christ. So here we are, gathering together as faithful followers of Jesus, as proclaimers of that Protestant doctrine, gathering together around the Lord's table. This is no small ordeal. This is not something to be taken lightly. What is happening here? What is happening here? Catholic theology at the time and still today says that the blood, uh, that the, um, the bread and the wine literally become Jesus' body and blood. Jesus is literally sacrificed on the altar when the priest lifts his hands and speaks in Latin the words that would transform the elements into the literal body and blood of Jesus. As you probably know, Luther was a Roman Catholic monk, and when he performs his first Mass, he has difficulty in his heart over this very topic. And this is what he says. Luther says this, At these words I was utterly stupefied and terror-stricken. I thought to myself, with, with what tongue shall I address such majesty, seeing that all men ought to tremble in the presence of even an earthly prince? Who am I, that I should lift up mine eyes or raise my hands to the divine majesty? The angels surround him. At his nod the earth trembles. And shall I, a miserable little pygmy, say, I want this, I ask for that. For I am dust and ashes and full of sin, and I am speaking to the living, eternal, and true God. Luther was starting to get it. He would soon become the great reformer. This doctrine that the Catholics have, called transubstantiation, that Christ is crucified over and over and over at every Mass, is heresy. The, the Reformers wouldn't put up with it, and neither should we. Christ has completed the task. It's done. It is finished. Christ has finished the work on the cross. Christ is our substitute. He is our substitute. He stood in our plate, our place, our substitutionary atonement. Not a potential atonement if we do certain things, a substitutionary atonement. At that moment, Christ was our substitute and he remains our full substitute. We don't add one thing to this. So we come to this text. We're going to read through this text, Mark chapter 15 and following. I want to give you a little running start into this chapter. And I want you to recognize a couple of things. This chapter does not focus so much on the, the, 
on the um, brutality and the cruelty, but it's more about focusing on the shame and the mockery of Christ. And it eats at the reader. He does not deserve this, and we know it. We've read through the entire gospel, and we know that he does not deserve this. Look at chapter 14, verse 55 and six, through 65. Now the chief priest, chapter 14, we're going to run and start in 15. Chapter 14, verse 55. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And son stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. They got nothing on him. They have nothing. And the things that they have on him, they can't even agree about. I don't know if you know much about what happens in like a courtroom. If things don't agree, you don't have much. And the high priest stood up in the midst of midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? So, all right, Jesus, you see where they're not making any sense. False testimony, not even matching up, say something. He remained silent, made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And we're thinking, Jesus might get off. Nothing's quite adding up right. The testimonies are false, and they're not matching up, so he might get off. Verse 62, And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heavens. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving of death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. He doesn't deserve this, and we know it. He doesn't deserve what's coming. Peter, right after that, is confronted three times, and he denies Christ three times. Let's read together chapter 15. We'll read chapter 15 and 16. I take the shorter ending to Mark, and if you'd like to talk about that later, I can talk to you about it later. But we'll end in chapter 16, verse 8. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You've said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner, for, they asked, uh, for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. All right, here we go again. He might be able to get out. He just might be able to get out of this thing that he does not deserve. Verse 9, and he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? He like, doesn't even give him the other option. For he perceived it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. 
But the chief priests had stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Pilate cared more about satisfying the crowd than what, doing what was right. He gave in to the crowd's wishes. He knew it was right. Pilate knows he's innocent. He does not deserve this. Have you ever felt this way about someone who's wronged? Why is this happening to Jesus? We can feel the anguish inside of Christ, and it's becoming our own. Then he's ruthlessly mocked. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, this is verse 16. And they called together the whole battalion. Get them all over here, call them all over here. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisted together a crown of thorns. And they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, put on his own clothes, and they led him out to be crucified. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. Verse 23, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among, him, among them, casting lots for them to decide each, what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inception, inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priest with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He can't even save himself. Let the Christ, the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. He's getting it from all angles. From the religious leaders who mock him to the robbers who deride him revile him, and to the people that are just passing by. And when the sixth hour had come, there was a darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. 
And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the centurion of the temple that... Curtain, sorry, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What a picture. And the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. Jesus dies a criminal's death. In faithfulness to the father... He dies a criminal's death. We'll spend just a little bit more time on these next three sections. The next three sections, the first section is the women at the cross. The next section is Joseph Arimathea before Pilate. And the third section is the women at the tomb. This is what some people call a Markin sandwich, where you have the women on either end. Women at the cross, the women at the tomb. The story could have skipped over the Joseph Arimathea part, but it's there for a reason. And I want to bring that out to you. So first part, the women at the cross. The women, um, look at verse 40. There were also women looking on from, from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph the, and, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. But look at verse forty. They were looking on from a distance. Who followed Jesus to the cross? Anyone? They got one guy, a passerby, to help him carry the cross. Who followed Jesus to the cross? Peter almost did. He denied him three times. These women stand off in a distance. Jesus was totally abandoned, even forsaken by his father. Verse 34. They followed him in Galilee and served along in the way. They served him along the way. And even other women came to Jerusalem with him, but stood in the distance at his death. Joseph of Arimathea. And even when evening had come, this is verse 42, and evening had come since it was the day of preparation, that, it, uh, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, says something about who he is, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether or not he was dead. And when he had learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. An emphasis on the fact that this Jesus is actually dead. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in the tomb that had been cut out of a rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. A couple of statements about Joseph. In verse 43, that demonstrates his devotion. He's waiting for the kingdom of God. He believed what Jesus was preaching throughout his ministry. The kingdom of God is here, is at hand. Chapter 1, verse 14. Secondly, he took courage and went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. This, this is a bold move to ask a governor, to go to the governor, uh, to ask for the body of a man who was executed as, um, executed as an enemy of Rome. 
It, it, it took some boldness for this man to do that. It harkens back to the woman who anointed Jesus' body for burial in chapter 14, verse 8. For she prepares his body, and Joseph takes his body, literally, chapter 14, verse 22. Parallelism demonstrates a similar kind of devotion that we saw in chapter 14. Lastly, the women at the tomb. When the Sabbath was passed, this is verse 1 of chapter 16. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified? He has risen. He is not here. See the place where, he, where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Um, Women were not given the ability to give an acceptable testimony in, in, as a witness in court. And here they are, going to a tomb. They have no men to help them because the stone was so large they didn't even know who was going to be able to roll the stone away to help. Were the men in hiding? Where are they? It took significant strength to do this. Where, where are they? They get to the tomb, the stone is rolled away. It is very large. God rolled it away. Enter the tomb, saw a young man. They were alarmed. The angel says, don't be alarmed. He's risen. He's not here. Are you serious? He's gone? Go and tell his disciples. And Peter, he said it to Jerusalem, that he said it to Galilee. He will meet you there just as he told you. They saw him crucified. They saw what he was, in verse 40, they saw what he was buried in verse 47. They saw that he had been raised. See the place where they laid, laid him, verse 6. And their response? Fear. Not like the faith of the centurion, woman who, or the woman who anointed Jesus at Bethany, or, or Joseph of Arimathea, because of their fear, they didn't say anything to anyone. And that's it. We're left hanging at the end of this story. First, to whom are they writing? He's writing to Gentile believers. Um, Chapter 15, verse 42 helps with that. The Gentile believers, knowing that the message had reached them, how did it get there? These women have the the message. How did it get there? Someone must must have said something. The question's in our mind. Why were they afraid? Why Why wouldn't they tell anyone? This message needs to get out. Christ is risen. Just like he said, people need to know the resurrected Christ. What is wrong with these women who won't speak up? They have the good news. 
Tell it to the disciples. They probably want to hear this. Tell it to Peter, who denied him three times. They might want to hear this. They might be a little bit scared, too. He'd tell people about this risen Christ. Why won't they speak up? Exactly. The short, abrupt ending to Mark is a literary tool to drive home a point. It leaves us hanging to make us ask these questions of of these followers of Jesus and then realize that these questions are really for me. Why would I, with this great news, shudder in fear? Why would I not proclaim the message of the risen Christ to people? Application point number one, proclaim the good news of our resurrected Savior. Disciples will make disciples. Mark 1, follow me and I will make you to become fishermen of men. Doesn't make sense that we would have such good news and hide it. You have the joy of Christ, but hold it in. We don't do that when we have joy for anything else. We let it out. Maybe we don't really love God. Maybe we don't really love our neighbor. We get so concerned about our own well-being and comfort and desires and friendships and this and that and whatever. Do we really love people enough to speak up to them? Do we really love God enough to speak up to people? To our neighbors, to our co-workers, to our classmates, to our family members that we pray for often? Speak up. Number two, don't fear, believe. There's a theme throughout Mark of fear versus faith. See that in chapter 4 and chapter 5 and all over the place. You don't fear man who can only kill your body. That's all they got. The worst that they can do is kill you. That's it. But we fear God who can kill both body and soul in hell. The tomb is empty. It's time to respond. Do we fear man? Do we believe in Jesus? Proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So, after being declared guilty... John Rogers was sentenced to death in January of 1555. Not being able to communicate with his wife and family for an entire year while he was in prison, he hadn't even met his youngest child. So he pleaded with them to be able to see and speak to his wife at least before he died. He was denied this privilege. The next morning he was roused from his cell, forced into the streets of the parish he once pastored. He walked in the shadow of the church where he had preached. Thousands of spectators lined the way. And in the sea of faces, he saw his family. His wife holding a baby. The first time he had ever seen his youngest child. With ten other children standing beside. Watching their daddy. One writer writes, Their anxious faces were all fixed on him, and their voices of pain reached his ears. Another writer says this, It's difficult to even imagine anything more tender and affecting than this parting scene to a beloved wife and so numerous an offspring, all in tears. He stood the shock with feelings of a father and a husband, but with the unshaken confidence of a Christian marching to his death. When he arrived at the stake where he would be burned, the sheriff gave him one last chance to recant. His response, 
That which I have preached, I will seal with my blood. The fire was lit. His body slowly began to burn. And as he lifted his arms high in the air, one author says, the enthusiasm of the crowds knew no bounds. They rent the air with thunderous applause. In four years, 288 people were burned at the stake under the reign of Bloody Mary. Platt says this, Our brothers in the faith were emboldened to die for their belief. Die for their belief in this. See the day when people explore theology not merely as an academic exercise, but as a life and death endeavor. See this day when wives and children saw in their husbands and dads a willingness to sacrifice and suffer for the sake of what they studied. See in that day men who gladly embraced martyrdom for the sake of mission. Let us be reminded that it is altogether right for us to give our lives preserving and proclaiming this gospel. End quote. This is the testimony of Christ. He went to the cross and suffered for the mission of God, the will of his Father. He suffered ridicule, mockery, pain, agony, torture, and death because of his love for his Father and because of his love for his enemies. And he had no one with him, no thousands of people supporting him, no wife and kids. He is our great example of faithfully following no matter what. Verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. As we come together around this table, may we remember what he has done for us and what we are called to do for him. Our love for him compels us to live and to die for Christ and his gospel. Let's pray. Oh God, as we think about what you have done for us, as we read through this account of your crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection, we are so grateful that you are our substitute. You have taken the debt that stands against us with its legal demands and nailed it to a cross. By being our substitute, our perfect sacrifice. This text declaring the innocence of the Lamb who was to be slain, the suffering servant, for the sake of his Father and for the sake of his enemies. May we here today examine ourselves. And see if we really are willing and ready to live and to die for the things that we study. 
May we take your word so seriously. May we study hard the scriptures. As we consider what happened on this cross, may we be drawn to our knees in humility. For a perfect lamb that was slain on our behalf. And Lord, may we be compelled because of our love for you to live and to die for you. Give us the strength to do this, we pray. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.